ROI is a simple number, right? It is earned minus spent divided by spent. That's ROI. It's a math equation and it's simple math. It's subtraction and division. Um, where marketers run into trouble is that they don't really fully capture either of those numbers. They don't know how much they earned because there is no good attribution analysis down the, down the funnel. If you're like most business owners, let's be honest. Sometimes you just throw up content on social media and hope for the best. You hope that the content that you post will help you to generate revenue in some capacity. It's easy to follow numbers such as likes, new followers, comments, and don't get me wrong, those metrics are all great. However, how do you actually prove that your content and your social media marketing efforts is actually bringing in revenue that's helping you to reach your business goals? To explore this a little bit further, I interviewed Christopher Penn. Chris is the chief data scientist at Trust Insights. He is also the co-host of the popular podcast, Marketing Over Coffee. One of the key things that Chris explains in this episode is actually how return on investment, ROI, actually differs from return on ad spend, most commonly referred to as ROAS. So, Grab your pen, grab your paper, whatever it is that you use to take notes, because this episode is packed with a lot of value. Cue the intro. You and I, we own small businesses, and we need digital marketing to maximize our online presence. But the online space seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. This is Get a Grip on your marketing podcast. No BS, actionable marketing advice to help you leverage digital marketing and get what you offer in front of more people. So buckle up, put on your thinking caps, and get ready to grow. Now, here's your host, Daniel Parchment. Hey, what is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Get a Grip on your marketing podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Parchment. And as you heard in the intro today, today we're going to be interviewing Christopher Penn. Now, if you don't know who Christopher Penn is, he's the host of the Marketing Over Coffee podcast, chief data scientist at Trust Insights. But before we jump into today's episode, Chris, you know, how in terms of in terms of analytics, right? I, I consider you as the godfather of everything analytics, right? When I when I need to learn anything about analytics, I just go to your YouTube channel or I listen to podcasts that you've been featured in about analytics. Now, before we jump into the podcast, Chris, talk to me a little bit more about how you got into the world of analytics and where you are now. Hmm. So my background's in IT. Uh, I originally was uh, an IT director, and then I started at a financial services startup in the early 2000s, where I, I was the you know the the CIO, the CTO, and the guy who cleaned the restrooms on Friday because it was a classic startup. And an interesting thing happened along the way. Uh, technology uh, began to morph into marketing, and what was update the web server became update the website. Send you know fix send mail became send the email newsletter, and naturally a part of the of those job responsibilities became hey how is it going what happened uh how many people came to the website how many people opened the email and that was really the beginning of the the analytics journey for me i actually was a terrible student in math in in back in school and 
then, you know, things really changed in 2005 when Google bought this company called Urchin, uh, Urchin Tracking, and uh, took their product and astonishingly gave it away for free as a service called Google Analytics. Uh, little did we know at the time that it was basically their ploy to collect as much data from around the web as possible. And uh, then in 20, uh, on August 24th, 2011, they created what was called uh, multi-channel funnels which is the first multi-touch attribution modeling uh, ever made broadly available to people. And it was at that point where analytics became you know, uh, indispensable for marketers to really understand what was going on. My own journey through that was from 2005 onward, uh, trying to learn this stuff. And then uh, I left the company I was at, um, went to a couple other places. And then in 2012, the end of 2012, um, I joined a public relations firm because uh, I wanted to bring a marketing technology practice to a, a field that didn't have it. And that was when I started getting into machine learning and AI and data science. And so it's been kind of a, a wild twisting path from point A to point B uh, to where I am today, you know, uh, co-founder of a, an analytics consulting firm. That's great, Chris. Now, as I said before, I consider you the godfather of analytics. And this is why, because you've been in analytics since not only, you know, when, when Google just launched what is known today as Google Analytics, you know, you've been a part of analytics and AI for as long as, as long as I discovered you and I researched back about you, you've been a part of analytics. Now, Chris, the big topic I want to jump into today here is it's in, in terms of analytics, right? When people are pushing today, especially business owners, marketers, they're pushing today. The push is so prevalent to use social media as an extension of the business, right? But the big, the big question mark here is why is it so difficult to track the ROI? of your social media marketing efforts. It's not difficult to track the, the measurement of your social media ROI. It's difficult if you don't know what you're doing. Um, it's difficult if you have um, substantial operational silos or a corporate culture that is resistant to sharing data. But the technical procedure for calculating social media ROI is actually very straightforward. Uh, it incorporates good governance, uh, good tracking, it makes uh, it is being clear about what your efforts are, where you're doing them, and tagging and tracking those efforts, and then analyzing the data uh, based on you know the the basic ROI formula. ROI is a simple number, right? It is earned minus spent divided by spent. That's ROI. It's a math equation, and it's simple math. It's subtraction and division. Um, where marketers run into trouble is that they don't really fully capture either of those numbers. They don't know how much they earned because there is no good attribution analysis down the, down the funnel. Um, and they don't know how much they're spending, uh, because with, particularly with social media, there is a substantially greater soft dollar cost than a hard dollar cost. Hard dollars are when you take dollars out of your pocket and you stick them into you know, Zuck's wallet, right? <laughs> you buy some ads. Um, soft dollars are the hours you spend doing social media that you could have spent doing something else. It's an opportunity cost. Um, and whatever your hourly rate is, um, you know, the normal formula for determining hourly rate is take your annual income, if you're, if you're a salaried employee, um, divide it by 2080. Um, and that's just effectively your hourly rate because it's about 2080 work hours in the, in the year. Once you know and do those computations, suddenly you start to go, oh, you know, social media we earned, um, 
by uh, through attribution analysis, you know, $5,000, but we spent $70,000 of labor and effort on this thing. And you're like, social media has a pretty negative ROI in those situations. And that's when you then start to have to seriously question, okay, either how can we earn more or how can we spend less to make that ROI positive? But like I said, where you see the trouble happening is people don't have a good sense of either one of those numbers. And so they can't run those computations. That is brilliantly said, Chris. I like the idea of hard hard dollar cost and soft dollar cost because I think a lot of, in terms of looking at from an ROI, from a, uh, I would say like a general overview perspective, a lot of people don't factor in the cost of cost of employees, th that opportunity cost, as you mentioned, they only look at it as a pretty much putting money into Zuck's wallet and like, how mm -hmm. much do we make back? Now, Chris, what I considered that as is ROS or yes, return on ad spend. ad spend. Now, can you just explain to me a little bit about the difference between return on ad spend and ROI? So ad spend is different than investment, right? Um, so the formulas themselves are functionally different <clears throat> and return on ad spend doesn't capture the, uh, the soft dollar costs, right? Uh, at all. It only is, it's what did, what do the ads earn and what do we spend on those ads? It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So there's no, there's no accounting for profit cost essentially, which is what ROI is, is, is intended to do. And so you end up missing a lot of that information. When you think about it, like, you know, agencies love to hand out return on ad spend in their reports, but they never, ever account for the agency's retainer in that like, okay, if you put in your the retainer that we're paying you, suddenly our return on ad spend is like double digit negative. And you're like, um, so why exactly are we paying you money? Um, that's one of the reasons why you see like in a lot of, uh, you know, publications, People looking for a return on ad spend, you know, 400% or greater just to break even when you run the ROI computation because you've got all this extra overhead. And you have to take the perspective of a business owner, right? When you're looking at this stuff, you have to take the perspective of what is the total cost of profit? Um, if you are not counting, you know, silly stuff like rent, electricity, internet service, your mobile phone costs, right? The coffee machine in the lobby, all those things have it. A, a contributory drain on your business. They take dollars out of your pocket that you as the business owner don't get to keep at the end of the year. Once you adopt that perspective, like even if you're an employee in a company, if you, you're to say, what if this was my business? How would I operate this? How would I feel if I, if I was responsible for all these costs? You'd be like, wow, there's, I would make some very different decisions. You know, going from a, a large agency to running a small startup, you know, we are, we are, we see, the cost of health insurance. We see the cost of you know, just having a credit card. We see capital expenditures like the laptop that we use to, to run our, you know, or the servers and, and all these things get bundled into those operational costs. When you put all that together, you're like, okay, you have to be a lot more aggressive about the revenue you bring in from any marketing channel um, to be able to break even. You know, when you look at your PL at the end of the month as a business owner, you go, wow, I spent a lot more money on ads than I expected to. I spent more money on travel. Like 2020 in some ways has been kind of a, a well, it's a silver lining. Let's be honest. It's not a blessing. Uh, <laughs> um, but I look at my travel and expenses on our, our corporate PL, they're almost zero. Like, you know, you know they're, they're down like 98% from previous year. Like, okay, so we spent a lot less money on travel and stuff because you can't go more than five miles from your house. Uh, <laughs> so, 
when we're talking about these different measures of marketing performance, we really have to be accounting for all of the costs. And if we want marketing to be truly profitable, we've got to get the big picture. Brilliantly said, Chris. And, you know, accounting for that that big picture, not leaving anything out. You might look at it as, okay, this coffee machine that's in the lobby, it doesn't really matter. But it's still something that the business owner spent money on. Now, Chris, what, you know, talk to me a little bit more about understanding the customer journey. I think one of the biggest things is that, you know, first of all, tracking analytics is one thing but also understanding the customer journey in order to know what to track. Talk to me a little bit more about that, the customer journey and how it ties into pretty much ROI and tracking analytics. Well, so it's funny you mentioned the customer journey. I'm going to turn this back on you. What do you think the customer journey is? The customer journey is the series of interactions with the business that a customer takes until pretty much the desired outcome is reached. Right. I, I think that, you know, a part of the customer journey looks different for every business, but ideally honing, honing in on, you know, how what are users looking for? How are they searching? Where are they looking? Where are they spending most of your time and connecting with them there until that desired outcome is reached? And what's the desired outcome? The desired outcome could be a sale. More in most cases, it's a sale, or for them to for them to buy something, or sign up for a newsletter, or you know, sign up for an a weekly email. You know, wh- whatever it may be. Okay, so I am going to uh, disagree with you there, and. The customer journey, when we use that expression, marketers, and this is not unique to you, this is so many marketers, stop halfway through, right? The customer journey is the journey a customer takes in the lifetime of being a customer. So it is awareness, it is consideration, it is evaluation, it is purchase, and that's where marketers stop. That's just the buyer's journey, that's half of it. Then you have ownership, you have loyalty, you have retention, you have evangelism, the back half of the journey of, hey, you did this thing for the customer. Is the customer happy or are they pissed off at you? Um, you sold them a piece of you know plastic junk. They're really unhappy. And now they're telling 10 of their friends, I hate this company. Guess what? They're making your marketing harder. Everything that's happening on the back half of that journey that you're ignoring, that you're not measuring, that you're not running analytics on is impacting the front half of the journey. If you do a really good job with, say, customer service and fulfillment, what happens? You get more satisfied customers for referrals and your marketing costs drop because that one happy customer tells 10 of their friends and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll consider buying that. And you'll see it reflected in things like organic search. But you don't necessarily know that it's from evangelism unless you are constantly surveying, talking to customers, measuring NPS scores, whatever the measures you need along the back half of the journey that inform the front half of the journey. So when we're talking about customer journey analytics and attribution, we have to take into account all the things that happen at each stage of the journey. Um, you know, awareness. What kind of awareness do you have out there? How are you measuring it? Are you just doing you know really basic stuff like ad impressions? Or are you looking at things like branded organic search? How many times does somebody search for your company by name? When you look at consideration, you know, are, what kind of conversations, reviews, and things like which, by the way, come from satisfied customers. Um, What's happening there? Evaluation. How do people narrow the competitive set? You know, again, looking at comparisons, looking at social media conversations, comparing vendors at the point of purchase. There is there's a ton of things that are happening there, particularly for 
you know, most businesses these days with the UI and UX and CX all happening at the point of purchase. You know, we have one client, they have absolutely brilliant brand. They're wonderful, but their their actual interface for buying their thing is less than optimal, which is putting it kindly. Um, and then again, on those back end metrics, we in marketing and sales have really perverted the term CRM, customer relationship management. It's really sales management is what most software is. We don't really do a great job of managing our customer relationships with the software. If, asking our customers, hey, how you doing? Um, one thing we just did at Trust Insights um, this week, we sent out a survey to our, our entire mailing list just saying, hey, what kind of challenges are you facing? And just, you know, just a blank text box, a one question survey. You don't need anything more than that. But now parsing through all this data going, oh, there's a lot of trends. There's a lot of things here that we didn't even necessarily think about, but we hear from people talking to our customers. That I think is probably the biggest single gap that marketers have today is they're not actually talking to enough people um, qualitatively to be able to understand what's happening in their in analytics quantitatively because all the data will tell you what happened. None of the data will tell you why. Brilliantly said, Chris. I, I think that, you know, that just shifted my mindset from just, you know, stopping at the point of purchase and taking a look, an overall look at not only the point of purchase, but retention. You know, um, retention, as you said, retention reviews come from sas satisfied customers. And I think that once you retain customers and cu customers are happy with you, you could turn turn those customers into brand advocates. Right. Looking at things like you brought up a good point here, branded search terms. I think a lot of people don't look at the branded search terms. And sometimes when I'm doing client work, it's, you know, I might not look at the branded search term just even to start. I might close that out of the gate, just focus everything on not even the, the customer journey, just, just just up to the point of purchase. But in terms of retention, and understanding the customer journey as a whole, it's it's way more than that. Now, that that's brilliantly said, Chris. I want to thank you for bringing that to light. Now, Chris, when it comes to tracking ROI from your social media marketing efforts, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make that <laughs> are... You, you, you have to like put your hand on your head or you, you, you throw your arms up in the air and you ask why. Oh, number one would be like just not installing analytics software, like you know, I, it, and, and or just doing it wrong. <clears throat> and it's not a hundred percent the user's fault because there are there are gotchas in all the applications that are out there. Here's a simple one: <clears throat> if you look in your Google Analytics at sort at the source medium, um, and you look at at social media, you will see things like m.facebook.com/referral. I'm sorry, Facebook is a social media site. It should be you know m.facebook.com/social. But because of the way all these different analytics apps are configured out of the box, they're almost all entirely wrong. Um, there's there's a, a hilarious one in Google Analytics. Mail.google.com comes is coded as referral. I'm sorry, Gmail, which is your own product, <laughs> is an email channel. You can't do anything in Gmail except email. It's, that's literally all it does. And yet your own product, you are coding as referral traffic instead. So it's... In terms of things people do the most wrong, it is A, blindly accepting what the software says, and B, not setting the software up correctly. You know, a, a real simple one that, you know, makes you scratch your head. People who don't set up goals in Google Analytics, like there's no goal set up. So what are you tracking? Just 
traffic. I mean, that's like tracking the people who walk in front of your coffee shop and never actually tracking people who walk in the door. Um, and I get it. Analytics, particularly marketing analytics, is not taught in schools. It is not taught um, professionally for the most part. And, you know, companies do not invest heavily in it, training their employees. And a lot of marketers have been kind of winging it for many, many years. And so you have this massive blob of of poor institutional knowledge that's been sort of passed down like you know bad urban legends uh, that continue to spread and continue to cause people to look at their data incorrectly. You know, the first part of doing well with data is being able to rely on, on the fact that your data is clean and correct. And almost in very few instances is that ever the case. Now, the, the, just, just to point that out, it's, it's setting up analytics. I think, you know, you bring up another interesting point is that, so I graduated from college a couple of years ago. Now, my focus was on marketing, right? I took digital marketing courses. And now that I'm looking back at it, that was never analytics was, you know, it, it was pay, maybe like mentioned, but in terms of going deep into understanding analytics and how to track that data and attribute it to pretty much where that it came from, that was never mm -hmm. mentioned. It was never mentioned. Now, Chris, I have searched high and low in terms of, you know, really getting an understanding of how to, you know, you utilizing Google, Google Analytics. But in terms of when you're setting up goals in Google Analytics, what are your tips on pretty much for somebody who's never set up goals in analytics? What are what are your tips on allowing them to be successful? Maybe not their first time around, but have at least some realistic goals set up. What are your tips on that? Well, think about it this way. When you are setting up a goal, it should be something that has a meaningful goal value to the business, right? So a goal of like visitors on the site, I'm sorry, my bank does not accept visitors on site, right? A goal is something that you has a direct line of sight to something that actually has business impact. It may be a form fill. That's okay. You got the lead, you generated the lead, and now your sales team can go and do something with that lead. It may be a shopping cart filled, you know, on your site. If you're an e-commerce company, that's a, you know, even if they don't buy, you at least got them to come in the store and, and shop around. That that's something that has business impact. And so for a lot of people who are setting up goals, you have to think, what goals do we have that have business impact? And if you, the answer is none, then your website's kind of hosed and you probably should, should reboot that first. Because if you can't tell what business action somebody's supposed to take from your website, update your LinkedIn profile because you're going out of business. <laughs> update your LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile. Because that is, Chris, that is brilliantly said. So looking at the overall business goals and you know, tying in it, tying it not only to an outcome of the business, but my question to you is, do you think ROI should be tracked only in dollars amount spent? It's a mathematical formula that's in currency. Yes, there's ROI is always is dollars, never anything else. Okay, Chris, so I'll take that into, I'll keep that in mind. Now, what are some, we, we've talked at length here about you know Google Analytics and attribution. Just just briefly define attribution for those who don't know what attribution is. Attribution comes from Latin, from ad attribuere, which means to give credit, right? to give uh, honor to. Uh, and fundamentally, it is all about who deserves credit for the sale. 
right? And attribution and attribution modeling has come a long way in the last 20 years. You know, there are still a fair number of systems and services out there that do uh, the most primitive model, which is called last touch, which is the last thing that a customer did before converting that deserves credit for the sale and nothing else. We know that's not how people buy, right? You, When you go to buy a new pair of headphones, you go to buy a microphone, you go to buy a car or a college, there are so many touch points. There are brochures, there's word of mouth, there's you know, social media, there's search ads, there's emails, webinars, you name it. And they all play a contributory role in that sale. So the most sophisticated attribution models these days can take into account all of that data and through machine learning technology, come up with an estimate of the each channel's impact. The way it's done is looking at the sequences in time that occur. The analogy I give uh, on this a lot is it's like basketball, right? You know, some there are some folks in basketball who are really good and can just shoot. They're, they're shooters. You know, you put them, you put the ball in their hands, they're going to score. The challenge is getting the ball in their hands. Some people are not great shooters, but have phenomenal passing game. Now, the trouble with the last touch model is you would say that only the shooters matter and the people with a good passing game don't matter. I'm sorry, if you take those people out of the game, you're going to lose, right? Um, same with first touch models. First touch models, you know, the person who you know, first gets the ball from the, from the pick, it's like, okay, great. You've got the ball. Do you deserve credit for shooting? No, you didn't get anywhere near the basket. You had to pass it to people to pass to people to get it to the person to shoot at uh, the basket. And so machine learning models can track these interactions and say every time the ball gets to Daniel, whether or not he shoots. Every time the ball gets to Daniel, we score a point, right? So in these all these chains of interactions, you would be identified as the most likely to help score a point, right? And the same is true in marketing. If there are channels that people transit through and every single time that person a person transits through that channel, you get the conversion, then that channel is going to be the most important, even if it doesn't have on paper the highest number of sales from the last touch. That's attribution modeling today, and it's what ideally marketers should be doing. The reason they're not is because uh, it requires extremely good data governance. It requires a lot of data, and it requires you to have the technical capability or a vendor um, to run the analysis, and it requires a it's a reassuringly expensive process. Let's put it that way. As my friend Tom Webster likes to say, it's reassuringly expensive, like sushi and surgery. should never be on discount. Um, with attribution modeling it is it is extremely computationally intensive to get it right uh, we're doing a model right now for one of our customers that has like direct mail postal mail um, they have a call center they have retail stores and we're sort of taking all this data you know, how many people walked in each of their stores every day how many people got mail and you know visited a website how many people just got mail period um and all these things to build this model for them. It says these are how, likely how these channels contributed, and it's it's a lot of work. But when they're done, they can make decisions and say, okay, this channel here, direct mail, was eighty two percent of our budget, but only drove fifteen percent of our results. Great, let's scale that back uh, because we're overspending there. And those are the kinds of important decisions you can make from a really good attribution model. Now, I like that that an analogy you gave with a basketball, right? Because you, you're so right. You take all of those players out of the game, right? And if I make the, 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 the game one and shot, pretty much I wouldn't have made the game one and shot without them passing the ball to me. Now, Chris, when somebody's setting up an attribution model or better yet, attempting to set up an attribution model, what are some of the most common misconceptions or Big, biggest mistakes that you've seen people make when it comes to setting that up? 
Uh, it comes down to knowing what model to choose based on your business. So there are, uh, you know, dozens of different models you can choose <clears throat> and they all have different requirements. And, you know, the biggest mistake is choosing the wrong model for your business. <clears throat> if you sell chewing gum, right, at a point of sale, last touch is probably going to be okay because other than brand stuff that you're doing, it's a last touch sale, right? The three-year-old who's walking around to the parent just grabs it off the shelf you know, at the, at the register and you've made the sale. Um, on the other hand, if you're selling a Gulfstream jet, you've got a really, really, really long sales cycle, probably like a five-year sales cycle with dozens or hundreds of touches. Same for college education, you know? Um, and so a last touch model would be stupid there, right? You need a, a true multi-touch model uh, and one that can accommodate all the different marketing activities. Uh, one of the other mistakes people make, uh, less of a problem now because so much of the world is digital, is not taking into account non-digital things. Uh, if you are doing stuff like mailers or billboards or whatever, you still have to be able to account for the activity in the model. Uh, and again, that's where a lot of this more sophisticated machine learning software comes into play because you can't do that by hand. I mean, you could, but it would take you the rest of your natural life. Now that, that is, that is brilliantly said, Chris. Now looking back at, you know, I think one of the most important things here, you, you brought up that example of the chewing gum and the Gulfstream jet, right? Those are two different in terms of the, with a Gulfstream jet, the the customer goes from awareness to consideration, and between them buying the jet, you know, it's it's more of a it's a huge purchase, so it requires more consideration, more research versus something as small as a chewing gum that may cost like you know twenty five cents or less. It's 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 more of that's I would I would consider that more of like an impulse buy. I wouldn't impulsively buy a Gulfstream jet. You know, first of all, I don't have the money to buy a Gulfstream jet. So I would research. And then, as you said, the average is roughly about like five years. You know, nobody's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go buy a Gulfstream jet today. That would be that would be absolutely ridiculous. Unless you have the money, that would be ridiculous. Now, when it comes to attribution, Chris, you, you brought up this topic before about, you know, businesses doing different having different channels, right? Whether that's via direct mail, social media, uh, magazines, don't know why you'll have that, but billboards, don't know why you have that again. Now, what are your tips on tracking? Let's say, for example, you're sending out emails, you're sending out direct mails, you're sending out, um, you know, advertising magazines. What are your tips on tracking that would it be using for example utm parameters or you know how how would you go about tracking that overall process i mean it depends on the software if you're using google analytics you absolutely should be using utm parameters if you're using omniture you're using etsid codes um it depends on what you're using for for your systems the the challenge is to make everything unique and distinct so your billboards should not be using the same url as your bus wraps should not be using the same URL as your Spotify ads. Everything should be its own unique channel so that you can track and see not only how much traffic uniquely came from this source, but then how much uh, cross-channel bleed is there um, to be able to look later on and say, okay, yes, in our, in our digital tracking, Spotify gave us some awareness, but it was YouTube 
that brought people in. But and but there's a synergy that was occurring there that neither channel alone would have delivered. It had to be both of them. When we think about life in the pandemic, right? Chewing gum actually is a really hard time with that now because you don't go to the grocery store as much. And ideally, you're not spending as much time in the grocery store. And you may be doing things like ordering stuff online and just having it shipped to your house. So now chewing gum, which used to be an impulse buy business, is now also a, huh, how do we get share of cart? When someone's on Target.com, Walmart.com, Amazon.com, how do we get, you know, Wrigley's into the basket with, with you know, the, the your hand soap and your sanitizer and your toilet paper? Um, these are actual problems that, that a lot of companies are now facing, which is one of the reasons why the pandemic has been such a disruption of business overall. People just don't know how to deal with these situations anymore. But to answer your question, tracking is all about governance. It's all about, it's very rarely a technology problem. It is almost always a process problem or a people problem. If you go back to, you know, this is H.J. Levitt's 1964 diamond framework. It's people, process, technology. Those are the three pillars on which businesses run. And any problem you have in marketing is going to come down to one or more of those things being wrong. When it comes to uh, analytics tracking, it's almost always the people in the process that are the problem. Now, Chris, you just mentioned, you know, governance. And I think you, you've said that word. If, if I've taken anything from today's podcast, it's that governance over the data. It's ideally the most important thing. Now, break down that word for me a little bit more. So, you know, people could genuinely understand what you're talking about when you say governance of data. Governance means you track who's doing what and what needs to be done. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's holding people accountable for the tracking that they're supposed to be doing with their marketing. So you, when you send out an email about your podcast, are you using UTM tracking? Are you using the correct URLs? Um, do you have a system for tracking all that? Are you measuring the results? Um, are the results correct? So there's all these aspects that go into governance. It's a fancy word for, is anyone keeping track of things around here? When you go to a client, and you see a governance failure, you see people who are just kind of doing things willy-nilly, not communicating with each other, um, reusing URLs for, that belong to other campaigns, not having campaign URLs in the first place. You know, I've seen customers that spent thousands of dollars on ads and just send everyone to the homepage of the website. I'm like, okay, I mean, unless it's a phenomenal homepage, that's kind of a waste of money. So all of that comes down to governance. And in this case, it means who's doing what, and who's overseeing it? Who's in charge? My co-founder and, and partner, um, Katie Robert, is always like, okay, who's in charge here? Like, who's, who's, who's running this thing? And when you, when you first sit down with a, you know, a, a customer and there's all these awkward faces at the conference table, and they're like, okay, so nobody's in charge. This is why you have a problem. You know? Or alternately, you have eight people raising hand. I'm in charge. And I'm in charge. Like, no, no, that's not how this works either. <laughs> when it comes to marketing operations, somebody has to be in charge and, and know what's going on. And that is the essence of governance. Brilliantly said, Chris. So governance, I'll repeat this again, governance is extremely important, right? Now, Chris, we've talked at length here about, you know, using Google tools like Google Analytics to track, you know, your, so, your marketing efforts on a whole, but what are some other tools that you would recommend to, to track? It depends on your level of skill. Um, what level of skill are we talking about? Like, let's say a beginner, right? Apart from like Google Analytics, do you have any other tool in mind? I know that there are some tools out there more sophisticated. Um, off the top of my head, I could think of, um, 
IBM um, Watson, I believe it is. Watson's That's not a marketing tool. Watson is an is an architecture. It's a collection of twenty three APIs. Here's what a beginner needs to have: web analytics, a marketing automation system, and a CRM. Those are kind of the the golden three pieces of a Martech stack that, as a as a beginning company, you should have. And you may get some um, duplication, like for example, HubSpot software um, is marketing automation and sales kind of bundled together. Um, there are other tools and you know packages. You know, I use the Modic marketing operation system. Whatever it, whatever you want to call it, those are kind of the three measurement-related, data-related tools that pretty much everybody. I'm, I'm trying to think of cases where you wouldn't want one of those, and I can't really come up with a, a situation where you're like, oh yeah, we don't need that at all. Um, I have seen companies do without marketing automation, but and they just send data straight into their CRM. That's okay, but it, has, it depends on the CRM. But those are the, the starting blocks. Those are the building blocks. If you don't know what happened and you don't know who you're dealing with you're kind of blind so just just to uh so ibm watson right i've heard a lot about that and it's an ar architecture as you said pretty much for building that out and attributing it to everything now let's say you're advanced right how would ibm watson come into play here what basically break that down for me on what its capabilities are watson is a collection of apis is a collection of services that you write your own code to connect to. They're kind of like really fancy Legos. And then you assemble and build the kind of architecture that you need to solve whatever problem you're dealing with. That, you know, we're talking about things like computer vision, natural language processing, uh, language generation. We're talking about you know, large-scale data analysis, data storage. Uh, we're talking about you know, neural networks and, and deep learning models. Uh, these are all pieces of you know what is in the Watson ecosystem, and then it's up to you. You can buy like you know from IBM, you can buy pre-purchase, pre-packaged things. You you can use, for example, Watson Tone Analyzer, which is a combination of natural language processing um, and a few other pieces, and it hooks into your customer service system and it says, here's an assessment of you know the you know all these customer service requests. You know which ones are the angriest? Okay, I'll deal with those kind of uh, the first. Um, but for the more the most advanced users, like you're saying. Um, they are endpoints that you use in your own code um, to build the outcomes you want. They're kind of like appliances in your kitchen, right? There's a whole bunch of different appliances. And then you are responsible for the menu. You are responsible for the ingredients. You are responsible for the actual cooking process. But the appliances make some stuff go a lot faster. Now, Chris, so I just had to ask that question because the nerd I heard about IBM Watson and just to, I know you know a lot about analytics, so I'm pretty sure you knew about IBM Watson. So just to, to satisfy the nerd in me, if you will, I had to ask just to dive a little bit deeper into that. Now, Chris, as we come to a close here, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to talk about analytics and some of the misconceptions with analytics. Now, before we go, Chris, where could people find you? Best place to find me is over at uh, the company website, TrustInsights.ai is the company. We're an analytics consulting firm. We, we try our best to uh, help. Uh, we, we do two things that we'd like to do tongue-in-cheek. Number one is we're sort of like analytics personal trainers. You know your analytics are out of shape. We can help you get them back in shape. Um, and two is we're like data detectives. If you got a mystery around your marketing data you, and you need you know, a, a, a Sherlock Holmes-style investigation to solve the mystery, those are the kind of the two big things that we do. Uh, to help companies uh, solve their mysteries and get their get their analytics back on track so that they can make good decisions and make more money. 
Thank you for that, Chris. And in case you need a reassurance, Chris and the team of Trust Trust Insights, they are the go-to team to, for analytics. You want to build out a sophisticated analytics model? Trust Insights. Chris, again, is the guy for analytics. Chris, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. You've been listening to the Get a Grip on Your Marketing Podcast. The number one source for no BS, actionable marketing advice. Make sure to visit our website, podcast.buzzcrowd.net, where you can view show notes, subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS to never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Till next time, this is Get a Grip on Your Marketing Podcast, signing off.